Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. A few years ago, there was a news report that was making the rounds in the media that caught my attention. Perhaps you remember it. It was a story that I like to refer to as, I'm going to get in trouble for this, the black gay Christian and the Whole Foods cake. This was a story of a black, openly gay Christian who ordered a cake from Whole Foods. It was a custom cake, and he asked for the phrase, Love Wins, a popular LGBT slogan, to be put on the cake. The story goes that in his rush to go home, he didn't notice that there was a homophobic slur on the cake. He, in turn, sued Whole Foods. Now, this was 2016, so there are many factors in this story that resonated with society and our culture at that time. You had the black community highlighting social injustices against them. You had the gay community highlighting social injustices against them. And you had Whole Foods rising in popularity, but also receiving backlash for being known as the rich man's grocery store. And for them to make a mistake like this was unthinkable for some and gratifying for others. So this was the perfect incident, the perfect story, uh, story for the media at that time. There's just one problem for this individual, security cameras. They found footage of him checking out, and they zoomed in on him and the cake. And at checkout, it was clear that the cake only said, love wins and nothing else. Having been caught, this black, openly gay Christian confessed that he had gone home and written the slur in order to gain popularity, fame, and fortune. The biblical incompatibility of being openly gay and Christian aside, I remember hearing this news story and thinking, how sad, how embarrassing. In one fell swoop, this man brought shame to his race, the black community, his sexual orientation, the gay community, and his religion, the Christian community. But there was one more community that he brought shame to. Is actually his profession. Now, normally in a situation like this, someone's job, their career, their profession really doesn't matter. It wouldn't even be mentioned. In this case, it was. Because this black, openly gay, professing Christian liar was not just a black gay Christian, he was a black gay pastor. Of all the ways that this man identified himself, in this scenario, it was his vocation that most contrasted his deceitful behavior. Look, all races have liars and cheats. 
All sexual orientations have liars and cheats. All religions have liars and cheats. But a pastor, something just hits wrong about that. It doesn't sit right in particular with that identifying factor of this individual. Because a pastor is to be a representative of God and His Word. A pastor is someone who teaches morality and truth. A pastor is someone whose speech is to reflect a holiness that is distinct from a mouth and heart full of lies. And that is why in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This morning we begin a new series in James on the tongue, speech. This is perhaps the most well-known passage on speech in all of Scripture. What many don't realize is that this powerful teaching on the tongue though applicable to all Christians, is fundamentally aimed at teachers, teachers of the Bible, to be specific. And so this morning, I want to give you from these two verses three considerations before teaching the Word of God. Three considerations before teaching God's Word. In other words, three important truths to think about before you become a teacher in any capacity of God's Word. Again, our outline is three considerations before teaching God's Word. The first consideration, the reasonable restriction. The reasonable restriction. Look at the first part of verse 1 again. We're in James chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, I call this the reasonable restriction because it makes sense for Christians, especially those within our circles, because many don't want to teach. Within our church, they don't think they're called. They don't think they're equipped. Maybe they don't like being up front. Generally, at least in our church and other like-minded churches, people understand the seriousness of teaching God's Word. But as we unpack this passage, we will see that the reasoning for James's restriction goes deeper than those, and in fact, many of you fall into the category of a teacher of God's Word, perhaps without knowing it. But first, a bit of background. James is clearly addressing a real issue that was occurring in the early church to whom he is writing. And remember that the primary audience for James's letter are Jewish Christians. Ethnically, and formerly religiously Jewish people who have converted from the religion of Judaism to Christianity. In other words, they are among the Israelites who have been waiting for the Messiah to come, but have, unlike their Jewish brethren, recognized that Jesus was He. Having that background, they would be familiar with the rabbi in the synagogue. This word that is translated teachers here in our Bibles is used of rabbis also in the Scriptures, but also of those who are teaching or preaching in the Christian church. 
the latter of which is whom James is referring to in chapter 3. Now, in the ancient world, rabbis held a huge amount of authority and honor among the Jews, which explains why the society, the culture, the people would, by Jesus' time, allow this strong and controlling Jewish system to have arisen, the system which we are introduced to through the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and priests that we meet in the Gospels that Jesus over and over again condemns. It was said by James's time that a Jew was to have more respect and more regard and more honor for their rabbi than for his own parents. The reasoning being that one's parents brought you into this world, but your rabbi would bring you into the next. And for this same reason, it was said that in the case of war or invasion, a very real possibility back then, and both your parents and your rabbi were captured by the enemy, your priority would be to ransom your rabbi before your parents. Now, all of this is why, though converted to Christianity, there were many in the early church who desired to be teachers. And what James is warning these Christians about is having the wrong motivations for being a teacher, namely desiring the clout, the honor, the respect. Now, although this isn't the crux of his argument, it is most likely the primary reason this warning is necessary because there were so many people wanting to become teachers in the church. In the end, there was a lack of awareness of how serious being a teacher of God's Word is. To be clear, please keep this in mind throughout this morning. Teachers are necessary in the church. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear. This is not something that we have come up with. It is God's design. It is God's plan. However, Those who become teachers with the wrong motives or any form of incompetency to teach can do much harm. And we know, as so many of you have experienced in other churches, that you can be extremely eloquent while still being grossly unqualified to teach God's Word because, well, because you don't teach God's Word. But the specific disqualification James is interested in here, as we'll see in the next verse, is the lack of moral qualifications of a teacher, specifically as it shows itself through a man's words, which we know are a reflection of his heart. Understanding God's design of the local church, we know that teachers hold a prominent position in the church as a whole, but also in the life of every believer in many ways holding the same influence as those Christians' former rabbis. Later this afternoon, I will be attending an ordination service of a man who's being installed as a pastor at 4 p.m. in San Francisco this afternoon. A couple weeks ago, I was on his ordination council. He passed. Thus, the service this afternoon. And the senior pastor asked those of us who are going, who are on his council, to share words of encouragement to him. And I won't share everything I'm going to say to Pastor Ray, but what the gist of what I'm going to say is, according to 1 Peter 4, 
10 and 11, we have all been given a spiritual gift. And though the pastor is given authority within the church, you are still family. You have just been gifted and assigned a different position. You are no better than the rest of the congregation. And I'm going to challenge him and the other pastors in the congregation. The moment you think you're better, the moment you get frustrated, the moment you, get, you tell the congregation or an individual thinking in your mind, how could you struggle with this? This is so easy. Then you have forgotten God's sovereignty and grace in putting you in the position that you have been put. And the secret, my friends, is being thankful. I'm going to tell him to never forget being thankful. Occasionally, people will see something I post on Facebook or something I say or something one of my kids say, and they say, oh, you're a good dad. And I say, no, I'm a thankful dad because I realize I don't deserve. And that's what's going to motivate. And so as we continue in this passage, I just want to help you have a clear understanding that, yes, there is a unique position and authority for teachers within the church, But as far as the blood of Jesus Christ and the salvation is concerned, we are the same. Different gifting, different roles, same body of believers. And so, James addresses this wrong thinking. He says, some of you need to stop trying to be teachers, and others of you need to step down from teaching. But who is considered a teacher? Although there is a clear position of a teacher in the church, as indicated by 1 Corinthians 12.28 and Ephesians 4.11, where teachers are listed along with other servants in the church in the historical plan of God, apostles and prophets. What James is speaking of here would apply to any who teach God's Word, and I can confidently say that because of the following verses. So although specifically addressing those who want to teach as I am doing right now in front of you, this principle, and listen up, This would apply and address counselors, small group leaders, small group facilitators, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers for adults or children. In other words, you don't have to be called into full-time ministry to teach God's Word. Again, teachers are very important. James does not say, let not any of you become teachers. He says, let not many of you become teachers. He is simply reminding everyone of the significance of God's Word and thus the seriousness of sharing God's Word with others. I would even argue, though we wouldn't call it teaching, as you will see, this would apply to any time you use the Scriptures or biblical principles to encourage or admonish. Because what we will see underlying all of this is don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to say it, it's because you believe it, and if you believe it, you better live it and not just expect others to, believe, to live it or believe it. In other words, to give you a bit of a preview, a lot of this comes down to the dangers of a teacher of God's Word, also being a practitioner of do as I say, not as I do, whether consciously or inadvertently. So what does this mean for you? First, it means that you should not avoid serving in a teaching ministry if you believe that is what you are gifted and called to do. 
But before any Bible classes, before any children's ministry training, before any seminary, any commitments, any of that, you need to make sure you have a deep and holy appreciation for the Word of God and what it is. The very words of God, the Creator, as breathed out of His very being. 2 Timothy 3.16, the youth group's memory verse for this week. All Scripture is inspired. The Greek word literally means God-breathed, inspired by God. The words, the Scriptures are breathed out by God, very God. Now, if you have a hard time fully grasping the seriousness of teaching God's Word, then perhaps the second part of verse 1 will help. Second half of James 3.1, where we find our second consideration before teaching God's Word, the compelling consequence. The compelling consequence. Verse 1b, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Now, the judgment that James refers to here is not a judgment of condemnation, although condemnation will definitely occur for false teachers. The teachers or aspiring teachers that James is addressing here, we assume, are true believers. Thus, the judgment we are talking about here is the judgment of believers for the sake of eternal reward. The Bema seat, which we looked at a few weeks ago when it was referred to in James 2.12. The judgment itself is described in 1 Corinthians 3.12-15. Just by way of reminder, I'm going to read that for you again. 1 Corinthians 3.12-15, the Bema seat. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now we know this is speaking of Christians because the passage passage ends with saying he will be saved. But there is a judgment that determines the quality of his earthly deeds for the sake of subsequent eternal reward. That which is not done for the Lord in the Lord's way will be like when you put wood, hay, or straw into a fire. It burns up. It turns to nothing. But good works, that is, words and deeds that match up with the Scriptures and come from the right heart attitude, are like gold, silver, and precious stones. Put those in the fire, and they remain. They don't burn. They will come through the fire to be shown to be worthy of the Lamb and thus result in eternal reward. Again, this judgment of believers is not for eternal condemnation that has already been dealt with on the cross for us. This is for those who are saved and thus have eternal reward promised. But the judgment is necessary to measure all that individual's life's works so as to reward him properly. So yes, though you are saved, how you behave on this planet does matter. What James is saying is this judgment is going to be stricter for the teacher 
because, quite simply, he will be held to what he teaches. In other words, because the teacher is assumed to understand the Word of God that he teaches, there is a greater expectation to obey it. Again, we are cautioned against the Bible teacher living out, do as I say, not as I do. The idea of a stricter judgment or being judged with greater strictness in the ESV indicates a higher level of scrutiny than those being taught or those who don't teach. Understand that at the Bema seat, it's not just looking at your deeds and passing them through a fire and we're kind of sitting back and going, Oh, I thought I'd add more. I guess that wasn't really honoring to God. I can see that. And we're just watching this and go, okay, that's a bummer. But hey, I'm entering glory with this amount of reward. There is a degree of chastening here. Even for the believer, there is a level of discomfort in this Bema seat. And more so for the teacher of God's word. This is really the same idea that is practiced in your own homes, this stricter judgment. You would not discipline a toddler according to the standard of obedience expected of your teenager. And that teenager would be specifically held to a greater accountability after doing something that you have just heard him tell his younger siblings not to do. I know you knew that was wrong because you just yelled at your brother for doing it. Now, whether that teenager is accurate or not in what he has instructed his siblings, the very act of putting himself in a position of teaching authority with the appearance of knowing the rules, you would hold him to a stricter level of responsibility and obedience. And that's simply what James is saying here. This does not mean that teachers are expected to be perfect. The same way when we look at the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, no one can hold all of those perfectly. Some of those are very black and white, and so you can hold to those perfectly. Do not be drunk with wine, husband of one wife. It's clear it's black and white. But there are other things that no one's going to be perfect then because we're all sinners. But there must be a striving. There must be a desire. There must be sanctification and spiritual growth, putting off and putting on. Teachers, no, are not expected to be perfect, but there cannot be a blatant disregard for what he is teaching others. For example, hypocrisy is not teaching that are we, we are not to lie. And then in the comforts of his own home, he's lying all the time to his kids or whoever it may be, lying on the Internet. We can't say followers of God are never to be angry. And it's not hypocrisy is that the teacher then gets frustrated from time to time. That's going to happen. Hypocrisy is teaching that we are not to be angry and then doing nothing to curb his own anger. No repentance. No asking of forgiveness. You guys have all been there. We've all been there. We're at the the cusp of anger and we choose to give in and explode. That's hypocrisy for the teacher. That choice. 
having no desire to be patient or repent of anger. We see a similar idea in the parable of the faithful and unfaithful slaves. You can join me in Luke 12 as I read this. Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 48. As Jesus explains a similar idea in this parable. 42, Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will, be put, in, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And here it is. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. You see the connection to those who have studied and taught God's Word and those who have not? From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of Him, they will ask all the more. That's a perfect word. Don't we use that of pastors and teachers? They have been entrusted with a role, with a privilege, with a ministry. Again, James is not trying to prevent anyone from being a teacher, but is encouraging them to understand the seriousness of the task. And by the way, understanding the seriousness of teaching is primarily for the teacher, but for the listener as well. In verse 1b, James is giving us a reason why we should think twice about teaching God's Word before actually seeking the role. Now, the seriousness of being a teacher and the subsequent stricter judgment is significant. However, we still haven't touched on the main issue, the main problem that James wants to address. It is the same issue, the same problem that he will address in the majority of chapter 3, but introduces in verse 2, where we find our third and final consideration before teaching God's Word, the pervasive problem. We've seen the reasonable restriction, let not many of you become teachers, the compelling consequence, the stricter judgment, and finally, the pervasive problem, which, as you have guessed by now, is the tongue. James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways, all Christians. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. James starts by referring to an underlying truth of Christian life. We all sin. We all stumble in this marathon race that we are running. Stumble referring to any sort of sin or moral failure. We all sin in a variety of ways and many different times throughout the day. There are many sins. But James hones in 
on one particular sin that he implies is common to everyone. So much so that if anyone does not sin in this way, he is perfect. And that sin is the sin of speech. And here James introduces the main theme of his lesson, the sins of the tongue. At this point, he is still specifically applying this to the teacher, but the principle applies to all believers. He emphasizes the power of the tongue in relation to the rest of the body or the whole body, saying that one's entire life, all of your physical movement, all of your moral actions would be able to be controlled if you had the discipline and self-control to control your speech, your tongue. It's not as if the tongue is some sort of mystical answer to all of your problems or a magical amulet when acquired can give you power over your whole body. James is simply emphasizing among the many ways that we stumble, this one is the most prevalent and the most damaging and the most easy to do. And so if you can control that, you surely can control everything else. Yes, your hands. See it in the news every night. Have the potential for great harm. And what we see in the news from time to time is someone's hands has created more harm than anything else we've seen in our society in days as they pull the trigger of a gun or thrust the knife. But that's just some people, not all. Yes, the foot and the leg have the power to press the gas and plow through crowds causing immeasurable physical and emotional damage. But that's rare. It's not common. The tongue, however, is an organ that is difficult to control for everyone. And that's James's point here. Which is why he says that if you have self-control and holiness to the degree that you can control your speech, you are perfect. Here, as in other places in the New Testament, referring to completeness or maturity, Obviously not sinlessness. Now the reason for this is because, again, if you have the ability to control your speech, then everything else will be easy. Thus the reference to controlling or bridling the whole body. Because by not stumbling on what you say, you show a complete and mature heart before the Lord. Athletes tend to understand this concept. They are not perfect in every aspect of their sport, But every athlete has a specific weakness that they know if they master that, they will be the athlete that they want to be. I think this is especially true of the field sports in track and field. In high school, I threw shot put and discus. I was stronger than the other guy who threw those things. I was bigger than the other guy, but he always threw further because he had the right form. By controlling his form, he was able to throw that with really half the size that I was, muscle, in terms of muscles. It's what all, makes it all come together. Is the one weakness I had that I just couldn't throw it right. Couldn't throw it straight. I almost killed someone once at a, at a meet, actually. 
you throw, go get your discus, and then walk on the outside of the field. And I kind of threw it at him. Um, I didn't hit him. He's okay. Or if he's not okay now, it's not because of that, okay? (laughs) When it comes to spiritual maturity, the tongue is the stride. It's the form. It's the one weakness that makes everything else under control. Now, he uses the word bridle in reference to controlling the body. He uses it for the tongue back in 126. Here he's simply introducing the metaphor of a bridle used to control a horse, a bit and bridle. We'll talk about that next week. When it comes to the teacher of the Scriptures, there's a frequent use of the tongue and thus more opportunity for stumbling. As a preacher of God's Word, and I tell people this all the time, There is more chance for me to slip up with my words because I use my words for a living. I speak for a living. But what James is referring to here is not mispronouncing a word or mistakenly giving the wrong Bible reference, saying the Apostle Paul instead of James, which I undoubtedly have probably done a few times already in this study. What he is concerned about is the special danger of the teacher. First, that he teaches false doctrine. That he teaches something wrong. That's not from the Scriptures. Or is a misinterpretation of the Scriptures. Or puts too much of his own opinion or experience into the Scriptures, so much so that the Scriptures are no longer the Scriptures. You get this. But secondly is the danger that we have seen that he teaches correct doctrine, but his life does not match that which he teaches. And when it comes to all other believers, again, the principle still applies. You may not use your words for a living, but you do use words. And this, as well as the rest of the passage, apply to all of us. Think about it. Think about your your words. Think about any given day when you're interacting with other people. You may get angry at someone. That's a sin. Don't get me wrong here. But it doesn't take much self-control for the believer to say, I'm not going to step forward and actually punch my coworker. That's easy to do. It doesn't take much effort. You may lust in your mind and your heart, but it's very easy to keep yourself from actually going out and having an affair or being intimate with someone outside of marriage. But the tongue, it's right there. It's all the time. How many of you have actually said stuff and someone goes, what? It's like, oh, that was out loud? Just talking to myself. Insults, gossip, lies, watering down the gospel, manipulating the scriptures, hurtful words, all the time. And as Christians, especially when we're with other Christians, we usually use our speech to edify, to encourage. We want to help. We want to sharpen iron. We want to build up. And this is a great reminder that even in those things, we need to be careful because one wrong word can cause much damage. I am not talking about being politically correct. 
I think you figured that out 10 seconds into the sermon this morning. I'm not talking about sparing people's feelings and watering down the truth because it's going to hurt them. We're talking about the damage you can do by actually trying not to hurt their feelings. No, it's okay. It's not okay. If there are in sin, it's not okay. We're gracious, we're non-judgmental, we help, we come side by side. But it's not okay. Don't tell them it's okay if your Creator says it's not okay. We see the danger. We see the temptation. We're tempted to do this all the time. The deeper the trial, the greater the struggle with sin, the more we're like, ah, I don't want to... Ah. And so consciously we water down the gospel we water down the truth that's okay if you do that no you know you're mad it's fine it's not fine you're going to do great damage you may make them feel good now looking back but what about the next time Ooh, so and so said it was okay and he knows the bible we need to be careful then you talk about the teacher If all of that is true, how much more then can a teacher in front of a classroom, in front of a congregation, how much more can a teacher with influence on an entire community cause problems with false doctrine or blatant hypocrisy? Again, this is not about having perfect grammar or eloquence. The Apostle Paul himself said he had neither of those. This is about Self-control, self-control from the heart for the glory of God. Outside of James 3, the other great passage on speech would be helpful here. I'd like you to see it in your own Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. If the entirety of James chapter 3, or the majority of it, which we'll look at over four weeks, is too much for you to memorize, I would recommend Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That is so powerful. There's so much I can say right here. And I'm going to. I hope you don't have lunch plans. No, I'll, I'll just give you some highlights. Just the ending there, giving grace to those who hear, we know that in the context, this is not frail human mustering up grace, being nice. This is the grace of God. This is God-focused, God-given encouragement and building up. Do we not want that? You in your own hearts know when you have said things to your children or you have said things to others or, or newer believers and you come away saying, I said that out of pride and frustration, that's not going to help them grow. You know that. And you feel guilty about that because you want to build up. You want to make them more mature. You want the kids to be more responsible. You want to open up lines of communication. You don't want to bash and tear down. And so we see that according to the need of the moment, that means think about what you're going to say. There are certain things that may be true but don't help the situation. 
That's not appropriate. That doesn't help. That's just theology. You're just waxing eloquent to sound good. How does that help that individual? But look at the main command here. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. If you read that section of Ephesians chapter 4, though the words repent or repentance are never mentioned, it is perhaps the best illustration and series of examples of repentance because repentance is put off and put on. Put off and go on your merry way is not repentance. Turn away from sin, turn towards obedience. Turn away from self, turn towards God. And in this, we see one of those examples He doesn't just say, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, keep your mouth shut, shut up, and just go on with your life, never saying anything again. You guys have heard this. Some of you have said it yourselves. Fine, I'll just never say anything again. Right? That doesn't help. That's not possible. It's not that you just train yourselves and now just talk about sports or pleasantries or the weather. The putting off is let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The putting on is but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So you stop saying things that tear down. You stop saying things that are unwholesome, any things that don't don't align with the Scriptures and the character of God. And you start saying things that are encouraging, building up strengthening the church of God, strengthening the people of God, giving glory to God. It's not that every word that comes out of your mouth needs to be edifying. We can talk about mundane things of life. Again, sports, weather, your job, your kids, things like that. But for the Christian, if you struggle with tearing down, if you struggle with being angry, if you struggle with saying words that are not helpful, that are discouraging, that or immoral, or bad. Don't just say, I need to stop that. You need to fill that hole, that void. Because if you say a lot of stuff that's discouraging or, or unwholesome, the reality is you probably like to talk, introvert or not. You like to talk. So fill that space. Fill that time. Fill your mouth. Fill people's ears and hearts with the grace of God by speaking words that are edifying according to the need of the moment. One of my biggest concerns, I'm trying to say this carefully, regarding screens for my children. Okay? I have three children, 11 and under. We signed in a document, some of you have heard this, it's called Wait Till 8, no, none of our kids get a cell phone until eighth grade. And the idea is if all the parents sign it, then there won't be peer pressure to get one beforehand. As you know, my oldest, not in eighth grade yet, diagnosed with diabetes, we had to get him a phone as a glucose monitor. That aside, we give them screens, very limited, weekends only, and on airplanes. <laughs> they get screens. But you see the danger of screens in kids. And my main concern is not just that they're on screens instead of reading or whatever it is. My concern is they're being trained 
to never be bored. They're being trained that if there's a second where they have nothing to do, they've got to pick up a screen. And just as for those of us who agree with the dangers of screens, just as we still have been trained by that, 30-second commercials, 45-second news reports, our attention span is very short. And we've been trained by the media to do this. It's not some big, you know, it's not some, some big thing where they're trying to manipulate us. They're just trying to make money. And that's what we want. We don't want to be bored with long stories and long commercials. And so we've been trained this way. And here's my problem with it. When you have a short attention span, you are trained not to think. Not to think deeply. What am I going to do? I have nothing to do. I finished my homework. I have no schoolwork. I don't have screens. Think. Think. I tell them, every little thing. You didn't know how to open that bottle? Go back in your mind and think what you did. Learn how to do that. Figure things out. Why, like a good Chinese parent, why did you get that one math answer wrong on the test? Go back. (laughs) Think. Figure it out. And what this passage is saying is you need to think. Don't just speak. Don't just go into your dusty reserves of Scripture and things you've said to other people before that you think have helped. Think according to the need of the moment. Think about what you're going to say. What does this person need? They're single. You don't, it's not going to encourage them to wax eloquent about the challenges of raising children and how the Lord strengthened you through that. Right? The wonders of glory are not going to comfort someone who just lost someone who's not saved. Think. Think about what their situation is. Think about the Scriptures according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And we circle back to James chapter 3, and over and over again, what we're going to see over the next following three weeks is the power of the tongue what he emphasizes is the power of the tongue to thrash, destroy, crush, and burn to the ground. It's a warning. So may I challenge you from Ephesians 4.29 and the rest of James chapter 3 to prayerfully consider and read ahead how you may self-control your tongue Because as Jesus says, it is the magnifying glass, the window into your heart. And for those of you who believe you are called to be teachers, whether in this capacity, whether to sign up for seminary, or whether just to take a few guys or gals aside to disciple them, think deeply about the seriousness of that amazing privilege before you make those calls. Three considerations before teaching God's Word. The reasonable restriction, not many of you should do it. The compelling consequence, there is a stricter judgment and the pervasive problem, the tongue, the tongue, the tongue. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. 
If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wisdom in creating us, heart, soul, and mind, strength, the way you have. We are prone to sin. We know it. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your conviction. As it comes to the tongue, Lord, if there are those who desire to be teachers, may you make it clear to them, those who should not and those who should. And for those who should, may they think deeply, profoundly on the weight of what they desire to embark on. For those of us in our congregation who are already teachers, who may not think they really are teachers, who, but in reality are, our Sunday school teachers, our assistants, our small group facilitators, men's and women's group leaders, all of those, may you develop in us a great appreciation for your word, a deeper understanding of your word, discernment, wisdom, that we may speak forth the truth. Give us a humility and, a, and an anchoring to your glory that we would not fear man to water down the truth, skirt around the truth, but be gracious and speaking the truth in love. Grow us, Lord, with that we do ask that you raise up more elders, more teachers, more deacons in our church, Lord. More of those who love your word and are willing to share it. But may we do so in a biblical manner for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.
take our place and bear our sin. Incarnate Word led to the slaughter. You conquered death and rose again. Please be seated. On the first Sunday of the month, we take communion here at Grace Bay Area. And if you've been around, you know that I like to remind you of what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, all refer to the same thing. It was instituted by Jesus Christ himself at the Last Supper uh, with his disciples. And he instituted it so that we as Christians, until he returns, we will remember what he has done for us. And so the symbolism of the bread or the wafer And the juice or the wine talk about or refer to symbolize his body and his blood sacrificed for us. It is symbolic. It is not as some other offshoots of Christianity teach. It does not transform into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. It is not the physical body that it becomes. And it does not somehow forgive you of your sins or cleanse you by taking this. It is remembering it, what Jesus has done for us. However, we understand that symbolism, not only in our day-to-day, but especially in Scripture, is very powerful. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells us, warns us actually, to not take communion, the elements, in an unworthy manner. And I want to make sure that none of us do that Because it does say that if we do this, if we take this in an unworthy manner, we'd eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And so it tells us to to examine ourselves rightly, to judge ourselves rightly. What does that mean? We're so thankful you're visiting with us. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if that is you, you're welcome to stay, but this is not for you. Please let it pass. No one's watching you. No one's judging. If you are a believer and you have a broken relationship that you have not attempted to mend or mended, you need to leave your offering at the altar and make it right. We apply that to communion. If you have any sin that you have not confessed that you are aware of, it could be be sin that you committed even this morning. I'm going to give you a moment to confess that right now so that you will not take of the elements in an unworthy manner. If for whatever reason you cannot do those things, then at least for this Sunday, please do not take the elements. So go ahead and take a minute or two to pray silently in your own hearts to make yourselves right with the Lord in terms of confession and worship. If you don't have a communion cup, the bread and the juice are in the same cup. They're available on the back table.
one of the one of the wonderful promises and aspects of the Lord's table that is I believe sometimes if not often forgotten or not mentioned is the formula that we read from the gospels or 1 Corinthians 11 just does not just talk about remembering in the past but communion is a promise for his return it's our looking forward to his coming again as we'll read in a moment go ahead and take these cups it can be a little tricky there's two flaps there's a clear one that'll release the wafer. Go ahead and do that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that together. He goes on to write, in the same way, he, Jesus, took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink that together. Let's stand. As we pray, let's stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing plan of salvation and this remembrance, this reminder of what you have done for us in your Son. May we live in light of this until we see you face to face when we'll be glorified and with you and can worship you fully and sinlessly, never forgetting, never stumbling with tongue or any other part of our body. Thank you so much for the redemption that is ours through Jesus.